Welcome home, folks, or I should say, welcome to an episode about residential real estate. With the expertise of two experienced executives, an investor and an advisor, we'll unlock the many variables that are influencing this diverse sector, from the global economy to a shortage of housing here in the U.S. and more. You know, Spencer, residential development is very nuanced. That's Zeev Cohen, Chief Investment Officer of the Resmark Company, a residential development specialist that provides capital for single and multifamily projects. Zeev got into the residential sector more than 30 years ago and has been involved in the financing and development of more than 15,000 residential units in the U.S. and in his native Israel as well. Pick your crisis uh, from wars to inflation um, to the, the, the general, you know, kind of macroeconomic factors. I would say now everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. And that's Roland Merchant, Senior Managing Director and Head of Institutional Advisory for CBRE Capital Advisors. In his 20 plus year career, Roland has worked on transactions totaling more than $20 billion. He's also an active member of numerous real estate organizations, including the National Multifamily Housing Council. Coming up, there's no place like home, a conversation on all things residential. I'm Spencer Levy, and that's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and to help us with today's conversation, we have two great experts in the sector, starting with Zeev Cohen, the CIO of the Resmark Companies. Zeev, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, Spencer. Great to have you here. And then we have our friend and colleague, Roland Merchant, Senior Managing Director at CBRE Capital Advisors. Roland, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me, and a pleasure to, to ride shotgun with you, Spencer. Well, thank you, Roland. How are the capital markets right now, Roland, and how are they impacting um, the multifamily sector? Well, it goes without saying, extremely choppy. Um, again, I think this time of year, usually you have, you know, what you know, some have come to call the, you know, the summer slowdown. I think that's been exacerbated, you know, really from March on, um, you know, pick your crisis uh, from wars to inflation um, to the, this, the general, you know, kind of macroeconomic factors. I would say now everyone's trying to figure out what's going on in the debt markets, uh, particularly with construction. Um, and I, I think inflation is at the key and we can get into that a little bit later. Um, but I think it, it is important um, when we're talking about multifamily or single-purpose uh, housing, which we'll um, talk about with respect to Resmark. Uh, if you're taking a long-term view, I think there are going to be clear winners and losers. Um, and I think that um, the, the folks that are able to kind of see their way through uh, in the next you know, three to six months heading into 2023 are going to be well-positioned. Zeev, big picture. Um, how's the market right now treating you, Zeev? It's a very interesting uh, situation, Spencer, because uh, I think you can actually look at the market from a variety of vantage points. The most obvious one is the uh, demographic side of the equation. Plus minus mm -hmm. 140 million Americans are in their peak consumption years for uh, residential. And we have not been providing enough housing uh, in the market. We're undersupplied by calculation, depending on the source that you use. Uh, anywhere from uh, a million to five million units, right? All as a result of uh, of uh, not producing during the uh, global financial crisis. So that's one vantage point that actually is very hopeful. The other vantage point is for sale housing, 
given the fact that uh, interest rates and mortgage rates have moved about 200 basis points from 300 to 550 and now more like 500, um, what we're seeing in the market is uh, softness in demand on the buyer side. And that softness is a combination of affordability and on the second side of it, which I think is more uh, influential right now, the psychology. It's not urgent anymore to go and buy houses. The mortgage availability is there. The liquidity is there. But I think that there's softness on the demand side on the fourth sale. It actually translates pretty well into multifamily on the operational side because we're seeing rent growth uh, being very robust and not easing uh, anytime soon. It will at some point in time catch up when we hit a degree of affordability. But we have people with great incomes that are uh, uh, capable of renting. These are renters of choice that are coming in. They're renting units both at our single family rental and our class A multifamily uh, communities. So, Zeev, most of our listeners on this show that are in the residential sector are most familiar with multifamily. And you spoke quite a bit, not just about multi, but you also spoke about purpose-built single-family rental and also single-family for sale. And as a developer, you've got lots of choices. Tell us about the similarities and differences between those sectors and how you choose the product mix. You know, Spencer, residential development is very nuanced as you move between and among those uh, uh, various product types. When we're looking at a for sale project, for sale residential project, we're typically looking at a project that will be built over a period of time in very, very small phases, anywhere between, you know, Uh, five to six units on the small side to 20 units on the larger side that have to be sold to an end user buyer uh, prior to you being able to continuously build through the project. So it's really a just-in-time type operation. The good news about that on the for sale side is that that allows you to have more limited equity committed to each of those phases. So your peak equity uh, deployed in the residential uh, for sale project is more limited. At the same time, you do not gain the production efficiencies of being able to start 200 units day one and actually go forward without any interruption based on uh, demand, typically in the multifamily space. The for sale side and the multifamily side are very different uh, with respect to that function. And right there in the middle, the purpose-built single-family rental. You're not going to build them in one phase, but you're going to build them in larger phases and therefore being able to generate a more efficient production. So it's very, very nuanced. And um, while the for sale side is probably built with more limited equity and then the for rent and in the purpose-built single-family rental, um, you have to clear the market. Once you've built the product, you, if you can't sell it for the price that you intended, you have to clear the market because the product becomes stale very, very quickly. So when you're looking at the two, there's a bigger market risk 
associated with the for sale side of the equation. It's much more cyclical. The for sale side of it behaves with much higher degree of volatility um, versus the rental side of the business. But at the same time, if you are looking at a for sale project and you built 20 units and the market is not there for you, you're just going to stop. You're going to stop the development and you're going to basically mothball or uh, uh, freeze the project until the market comes back. This is something that you cannot do in either for rent, a multifamily or for rent purpose built. Roland, uh, obviously the pandemic changed so many things, work from home in particular, hybrid work, but are investors now more keen on different forms of housing? And if so, what types? The short answer is yes. So even from a multifamily um, with the hybrid up model, folks are looking for a little bit more space. Um, and also folks are, uh, when we talked earlier about suburban with respect to urban, uh, folks with that space, typically you're going to have to move a little farther out uh, because it comes becomes a little bit more cost prohibitive as well. Um, and then when we're talking about build to rent, um, again, the appeal there is whether you've got a home office um, or you've got multiple folks that are using the Wi-Fi, you're going to need a little bit more space uh, and you are spending a little bit more time at home during the work hours. Um, so folks are definitely going to make that investment. So, Zeev, getting a little bit more on the field level for this, did you change the size of your units, the configuration of your units because of the pandemic? So I think that, uh, Spencer, from our perspective, the development community is responding to an assumption or uh, the hypothesis that uh, the work from home or remote work, however you want to call it, is here to stay. It's indefinite. And in some form of a hybrid combination. So, for example, at Resmark, we're basically spending three days at the office and two days uh, at home uh, in general. And I think a lot of companies are looking at that viewpoint and us as developers and us as capital providers in the space are looking at that and saying, okay, is it legitimate that somebody's going to work out of their bedroom because they don't have a good space to utilize as an office? Or is it okay for somebody to be working from a closet, right? And that goes into our design concept. If you look at product that's been designed recently, uh, you're going to see a lot more common area that is being used as potential for privatized office space. So in a sense, a lot more nooks that give people privacy, the incorporation of dens into the either for sale or for rent unit design, creating the opportunity for uh, mom, dad, and the kids to be working and learning from home at the same time. And I think there's a lot of that uh, uh, that is... Uh, ahead of us, uh, because I think that most corporations are viewing this as a situation that's going to be here for a while and maybe permanently and uh, designing that way accordingly. So maybe there may be a counterintuitive change here in that you might potentially see smaller individual units, but bigger common areas within these same buildings that have these, as you put it, I think, individualized nooks where you can uh, work uh, in a quiet space. Is that a fair way to put it, Steve? That is a fair way to put it on the multi-side, multi-family side. When you look at the for sale side and some of our uh, uh, built-to-rent product, uh, we're actually trying to amenitize the home 
inside of it and create more of those spaces. So uh, where in a kitchen, maybe generating an additional desk in the kitchen, in the bedroom, creating a, a nook within the bedroom that somebody can be working in instead of getting into their closet in order to create some degree of privacy. So in the multifamily space, we're seeing it mainly in the common area, in the for sale space, really re-tweaking uh, 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 the, the house design to accommodate more uh, uh, privacy within the confined space of the house. So, Zeev, you cover a, a wide swath of different residential options, including multifamily, for sale residential, and then um, single family rental. Uh, it's obviously very difficult to pivot on a dime in any form of real estate because of the long lead it takes for all of these projects. That said, given the changes in market conditions in the last six months, have you pivoted? So the way that we're looking at the world typically is um, as you underwrite each segment and each project with discipline, um, you're always going to be very selective in the opportunities that you pursue. So on the for sale housing today, um, the degree of conservatism and the margin of error has increased over the past uh, six months. No doubt about that. On multifamily, I believe that from Resmark's perspective, uh, we're underwriting an expanded cap rate going in and very, I think, dynamic rent growth on a go-forward basis. Now, we're looking at the rent growth and saying, we're going to look at historical values, 2 to 3% on the revenue growth and 2 to 3% on the expense growth. Uh, but... I believe that we are witnessing an expansion in uh, cap rates due to, you know, cost of debt and, and things of that nature that have not trickled down completely into the development uh, side of the uh, equation. So while we're very active on the multifamily side of the business, I think we're seeing fewer and fewer excellent opportunities. But I think that's going to change for the first time in, in a long time. I think we're entering a buyer's market opportunity in both for sale and for rent. Single family built for rent, the business is so robust right now due to uh, the demographic trends that I talked about before and the fact that there is uh, enormous amount of capital that is interested in the space. We're seeing great stability on, in the capital markets and, and great fundamentals on the uh, operational side of the business. So we're heavy right now, built for rent. I think it really comes down to capital um, and the availability. So part of serving the clients like like Zeev and Resmark, um, where traditionally they might have had one to three service providers or capital providers um, that were probably more household names. Now we're you know looking to expand that one just from um, more of a belt and suspenders uh, as you're looking to expand and grow, but also moving more from traditional multifamily to what we'd call purpose-built. So even when we talk about, you know, single-family rental, I think that's more of a catch-all. Um, but within that, I think everyone has a different, I guess, lens as far as how they really are approaching uh, that particular business. But I, I'd say that the biggest pivot is probably um, from a long-term capital perspective um, is making sure that you're well-capitalized uh, for future growth. And, and Roland, suburban investment, it is undergoing a, a change in investors' uh, mindsets, at least as we see it. 
it used to be all about urban with the millennials. And I think since 2015, we've been seeing strength in performance from suburban markets and COVID just completely elevated that. So when we're looking at the market, and you know, we've been active in suburban markets for 27 years because of our single family for sale concentration, uh, we've been in the suburbs for 27 years. We understand them. And it has this common theme today that investors are much more interested in moving into the suburbs. The thesis goes hand in hand with the uh, remote work opportunity that got exposed during COVID. So let's just go to this very point here, suburban. I think it's fair to say, Roland, maybe you'll agree with this, that in our business, in the investment banking business, suburban was always had a negative connotation. Um, has that changed? It definitely has changed. I think we saw that probably out of the pandemic. Um, you know, call it, you know, pre-pandemic, you wanted urban, you wanted high rise with respect to multifamily, um, and uh, you wanted class A. Uh, and as far as performance, I think we saw that probably the quickest drop from occupancy was probably your Uber, you know, class A, where we found that your, call it um, A minus B, uh, more affordable, you know, they probably went from 90, you know, 5, 96% occupancy to 98, 99 and, and held steady. Um, and then same held true kind of uh, uh, right outside both suburban and suburban. So I think that is something where whether you're a portfolio manager or CIO, folks were definitely paying attention and what that means on a go forward basis. So Zeev, going back to the product mix and you mentioned you do everything, uh, single family, rental, single family, uh, for sale, multifamily. And one of the things you said about suburban really struck me, which is sometimes it's really hard to build in the suburbs, uh, much harder than you might think in a urban environment. Um, it's funny because if we had on this show urban developers, they would say, oh, it's so hard to build in New York or San Francisco. Uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the complicating factors of building in a suburban environment. Right. So, so the benefit of the suburb, I'll start with the benefit, is that uh, land is more available. So it, it's not a function of, of land availability. It's a function of dealing with additional uses uh, or varying uses around you and uh, dealing with nimbyism and dealing with the fact that uh, the municipalities have specific agendas that are not necessarily aligned with what it is that you're trying to produce. If you're producing in the urban market, and I'm not saying it's it's easy to produce in the, in the urban markets, far from it, but I'm saying it's a different skill set. In some municipalities, where probably the municipalities that you want to build the most, it is extremely difficult to change uses from uh, either idle uses or, or uses that are not uh, uh, generating the highest and best use uh, just because of the conflicting interest within that municipality. I'll give you a perfect example for that. Uh, retail in suburban markets. Uh, retail in suburban markets is hurting. It has been hurting for a long time, right? So you're going into those uh, older, more dilapidated retail strips and you want to change use to residential where you know we have shortage of housing. This is probably the hardest entitlement task that is in front of any of us to generate that. In the urban market, there is more, I guess, progressive thinking, uh, um, uh, less conservative thinking about uh, land use and what makes the most sense. And I think that's the areas where suburban developers are finding 
uh, challenges going in and out of those type of situations, it does require a different skill set to go into those uh, suburban markets and generate what you want to generate from a business perspective. Roland, I may know too little and too much about the development business of single family because my father-in-law is in this business, so I've seen the roller coaster uh, up close and personal. But I think that what's unique about the land development business in suburban environments is that you are literally starting with, could be farmland, and then you've got to take it through entitlements. And then once you get the entitlements, then you need to build the infrastructure, and then you're ready to actually put something on top of the land. And so, Roland, I think uh, I speak for every land developer out there, and I, they would say, I want Roland to get me capital when it's farmland. Um, and uh, you're going to come back and say, I want to give you the money once you've done everything from entitlements to the infrastructure. So, Roland, do you agree with that? And what do you say to those land developers? You know, uh, we are looking for, uh, unfortunately or fortunately for the clients uh, like Resmark, uh, it really is um, – um, capital is really not going to be there in earnest unless you've got the entitlement, um, unless you have, um, you know, the friends and family capital where you can buy the land and land bank it and then work on your entitlements um, and then go from there. But typically the institutional capital is going to want one, someone that's done it before and has a track record and knows how to get through not only entitlement, but also uh, the master plan and the like, because all of that's going to be important to how you draw up the docs whether it's for sale, whether it's bringing in institutional capital once you have a CFO, TCO, and things like that. Um, so I think that, for better or for worse, uh, the capital is not going to be there unless you've got entitled land. Actually, that answer splits itself into the various uh, products that we, we're talking about. Let's start with the uh, for sale side of it. Spencer, I think your uh, father-in-law uh, was in the lot business, right, on the for sale side. Um you're absolutely right. Um, institutional capital typically does not go to greenfield and develops right from that on or deploys at that level. It requires some baseline of entitlements. And when I say baseline of entitlement, typically uh, uh, the zoning is correct and the entitlement of, of the project is by right. And then you have to go through a pretty elaborate process depending on the state that you uh, develop in. Um, uh, getting your uh, your formal approvals through planning commissions and uh, and city councils and board of supervisors and and so on and so forth. In that business today, given the weakness in demand on the for sale side, uh, we're seeing the biggest opportunity in securing land in various positions, various uh, uh, statuses of entitlement, either fully entitled semi-entitled or fully finished, uh, we're seeing, at least in the past uh, 90 days, the home builders have stopped buying. Doesn't mean that they're not gonna continue to build, but as we sit here today, they stopped buying. And that creates some friction and potential some situations of being able to buy land at at better uh, uh, valuations uh, in the next, you know, call it, uh, 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 12 months, 12 to 18 months. We think that there's a good opportunity there. Uh, um, that actually translates pretty well also to the uh, uh, single family rental or the purpose built single family because uh, most of those land sellers or land developers, the first line of defense for them right now is going to the uh, uh, single family rental developers and saying, have I got a deal for you? 
And the reality is for sale builder actually dropped the deal and they're coming to you with their land because they don't have a, an execution, an exit. And I think there's a great opportunity to strike right now with respect to the built for end business. When it comes to entitlement on the multifamily suburban sites, uh, most sellers in those sites, which are smaller in scale, they're not like 100 or 200 acre uh, or 400 acre type sites. These are more, you know, 10 to, to 20 acre sites, right? The landowners there have been trained to actually carry the entitlement forward, right? And provide the multifamily developer the ability to take a zone site by right and carry it all the way through the approval. So it doesn't mean that they're not going to try and get that done, but I've seen more and more on the multifamily suburban side of the business, builders optioning land, right? And letting the land seller actually go through the entitlement. Well, I think one of the things that changed in the single family rental space in the last decade, maybe the last five or six years, is that when the institutions got involved, they were able to operate many of these communities at a similar level of efficiency as they could with multis. But I think what you're saying, Ziv, is some of these non-institutional buyers may be caught short because inflation just raised their costs substantially and some of the demand is softened as well. Uh, I am confident in the institutional space because they have the ability to operate. They have a stronger capital base to move forward, but there may be some weaker operators out there that are opportunities uh, for people on M&A or uh, otherwise. Correct. And, and more importantly, and relevant to what Resmark does, in the development space, right, there is, it takes more than the ability to identify a site, right, and underwrite what the rents are and what costs are uh, uh, to actually be a developer. And I, I think that in the space, there are many startups that came into being and, and, uh, with good experience at the executive level, at the entrepreneur level, but don't have the execution culture as a company, right? And, and I think uh, in light of, you know, changing market conditions, right, uh, I, I think those weaknesses are going to get exposed. And for us, for, for Resmark, that is an area of opportunity in the built for rent business. Roland, one of the key issues we're getting from all institutional investors, particularly those coming in from Europe, is how they're looking at the E and ESG, the green side of the equation, and how that changes which deals they want to invest in and not. Um, I know that uh, brownfields, so-called brownfields, used to be a big strategy for many investors and in cleaning them up and making them um, buildable. Uh, but maybe that's gotten more challenging today because of the uh, focus on E and, and maybe more immediately. But Roland, how have you seen the E change the way you raise capital uh, for folks like Zeev um, in light of um, some of the changes we're seeing? Yeah, I would say before, you know, when you're talking to investors, particularly in Europe and the like, um, it was something that might be, you know, question number 10 of 10 questions, where now that's probably what they're leading with. Um, so I, I think it's extremely important. Um, and, that, and that's something we're addressing not only with, uh, you know, you know, existing clients, but, you know, as we're talking to folks, we want to know how they are addressing the, the E and, and ESG and really, you know, ESG, you know, um, in its totality, but definitely from an environmental standpoint, um, that, that's usually first and foremost. Um, you know, Steve, I don't know if you want to talk, uh, you know, kind of how you guys think about it in the type of projects as well. 
um, I think that would be informative as well, uh, particularly as you know your capital sources are are thinking about it. Right. So, so if you look at ESG, especially the uh, uh, the E from from our side, you know we uh, have been working, uh, have been uh, uh, fiduciaries to both uh, Calpers and Calsters for for many many years, um, and they have definitely elevated their uh, their ESG uh, uh, concentration. What we are uh, uh, doing right now is we are benchmarking ourselves uh, uh, against a variety of uh, of other operators in the space, including home builders. And we're going to have our very first ESG uh, report to be reported on by the end of this fiscal year. You talked quite a bit about the E, um, Z, Van Roland, but I want to go to the massive, massive housing shortage we have uh, particularly affordable housing. What's been your experience, Ziva? Yes, and I think is a combination of um, having attainable housing that meet the the demand, and not just providing housing that is uh, uh, becoming so expensive due to the fees and the regulations that are required in order to produce a a brand new unit. Right, so. Uh, there is the c- concept of develop more units and the pricing is going to come down, but the cost of production is not just the cost of materials and labor, it's also the cost of fees. And that's a significant cost, especially in the suburban markets. Um, with respect to the S on the demand side of housing, the way that we've been supporting attainable housing in many of our projects, there is an affordable component. It's anywhere between 5% to 20% of the units that uh, have to meet certain affordability and, and income test and requirement in many, many of our markets. I would have to say that that is more common on our West Coast project and less common uh, as you move towards the middle of the country if you will. And I think that that has been a, an interesting and welcome experience from our perspective. In Seattle, for example, uh, there is a program called the MFTE program, which provides the developer with some density bonus in order to generate more affordable housing and more attainable housing. And those ratios between market rent and below market rents are very acceptable and I think that we in Seattle, the, the development communities have increased the affordable housing element um, over the past 10 years uh, pretty significantly. And I think the program is going pretty well, and I think it's going to get continued over time. You do also get a tax benefit with respect to that. And then on the for sale side of the equation, it really comes down to housing policy. Everybody knows there's a problem. Everybody I believe, understand that a solution is needed, but it can't be done specifically and only on the shoulders of the uh, development community. It really does come back to supply, and that's something that needs to be addressed, uh, particularly from an affordable or attainable standpoint. I think what Resmark and Ziva are doing, um, one, it's a well-known and established operator that's building great product. Um, but more importantly, it's it's the right type of product. Um, and then we talked about the S uh, in addition to the E as well. And I think that's a much larger problem that needs to be addressed. So it's not just affordable or attainable housing. I think the future is, you know, again, and it shouldn't be left to the folks that are just building 
what we call, you know, capital A affordable or deeply affordable housing with respect to impact. I, I think that's something that needs to be addressed more as well, where it's just not the affordable or attainable housing, but having an impact in the communities where folks are living and where you're building, um, whether it's, you know, job creation, job training, and things like that, other ways in addition to just the housing um, that is creating also the ability for folks to move upward um, with respect to social mobility. We're actually very excited about uh, the future of housing uh, from our perspective, because at the end of the day, we are on the side of the equation that uh, provides for housing in a market that is substantially undersupplied. Now, we talked about all the challenges that come with creating that additional supply, but we believe that we're sitting in a critical spot in that supply chain that would create new housing, right, in a variety of unit mixes based on different strategies that we deploy for sale, built for rent, and multifamily. And through that uh, vantage point, I think that uh, being a value-add Uh, a component in that chain would help us provide our investors outsized return in a market that does not seem to have a fundamental demand challenge in front of it for the next uh, uh, 10 years. We're looking forward and we're seeing an accelerating need for housing based on household formation and not enough houses provided of all kinds, rental, or for sale. And we're sitting at that junction on both sides, the rental side and the for sale side. So I think the future for us is very exciting. Well, that was a great conversation, gentlemen. And I really want to thank both of you for joining the show, starting with Zeev Cohen, the CIO of the Resmar Companies. Great job, Zeev. Thank you, Spencer. It was great. Really appreciate it. And then Roland Merchant, Senior Managing Director, CBRE Capital Advisors. Roland, thank you for joining the show. Always a pleasure, Spencer. Thanks again to Zeev and Roland for stopping over at our place to talk residential. And thank you for tuning in, too. For more information on this topic, our guests, and our show, please drop by our website, cbre.com slash take. And if you like the show, feel free to invite others to drop by as well. You can share this episode as well as subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We'll be back next week. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.